is expecting you. Welcome to Thoughts from Aunt Wu, the Avatar podcast where we know the future. Today we will be discussing Book 3, Episode 10, The Day of Black Sun, Part 1. Quick note before we get into this, we are going to be talking about each of these two episodes, The Day of Black Suns, Part 1 and 2, individually. However, instead of thinking of them as full episodes, we're going to kind of talk about Part 1, and then next week we'll talk about Part 2, and we'll probably do kind of a wrap-up on both of them together for um, for the sort of the entirety of the invasion. Um, I've noticed in our previous episode, two episode discussions, we can get a little, things can go a little long, and I don't want to turn this into a three-hour podcast because I don't think those are particularly good. So we're going to talk about this episode individually, um, but we probably won't be talk, doing as much rating as we do because we th- this is definitely a part one and part two. With that out of our way, today I have joining me Corey. Hello. And welcoming back a guest, Chris. What's up? So let's get right in to our initial thoughts on this episode. This episode starts pretty quickly, so I think we should too. Initial thoughts, Corey, go. What a rebound from last, like, debacle. Like, this is, we're once again at peak Avatar. Everything, the visuals in this episode are, like, just stunning, and I, I don't mean, like, you know, fight, I do mean fighting, but the technology you see in this is just is just great. It's like the perfect mix of um, humor, seriousness, and it, it really starts tying together everything we witnessed in book three in a such a wonderful way. And this is another Iro episode I really like, and uh, I, I really, really love how everything begins to get tied up as a result of this episode. All right, Chris. Um, it's a cool episode. It's got like the I, I think the first real like big battle or that isn't like a one v one. Um, like you guys, you could see like how people fight in this world, which is kind of cool. Um, it raises some questions, but it's it's cool to see like if everyone could you know if everyone had these powers, how would war be fought? Which is kind of cool. which also made me want to like it made me want a rated R version of this that would be like fucking like super CG but that's a different story well we, we, we've been having that conversation a fair amount because we had we talked about that a lot during the puppet master about what avatar would be if it was rated R and bloodbending was taken to its uh, pinnacle it literally rips on apart <laughs> I probably would not be able to watch and would actually pass out um yeah, I think, I mean, this is this is kind of the second, I mean, we did have a little bit of, of this scale of a battle during the, the last invasion, the, the the Siege of the North, um, but that, I, even though that was probably a larger scale invasion, it wasn't as much the focus of the episode, since that was a lot more about Katara and Zuko's fight, Aang's trip in the spirit world, the stuff with the, um, the spirits and the ocean and the moon. So I think this is one that was was very much focused on this battle that was was going on, and that's really interesting. I, I thought it was really done done well. It I, there's some really cool things brought up in this in this um, episode, especially when it comes to the mix of technology and bending, which I really like. Um, in general, it's also interesting that they brought back so many characters. I mean, we really do get to see a pretty large swath of 
are sort of friends from previous parts within the story, which is cool. And also, I think they do a really good job, and we'll talk about this a lot as we go, but of kind of giving the individual characters a lot of interesting things to do, um, especially with uh, Sokka and Katara, who are kind of like really do have their own moments of, of clearly showing off both their own skills as well as what's happening. And, you know, with that and then the mix of earthbending, waterbending um, on the whole. Um, so, yeah, I, I think let's just kind of get dive right into this. Um, you know, we're, we're coming off of... Just, you know, what we talked about last week, which was just a, a real mess of an episode. And it is the one sort of last little dig, I have to say. Like, it is a little sad that we kind of opened this episode with, you know, Ang, I slept great, everything's fine. And it's like, oh, well, we need to be reminded of that. The Nightmares and Daydreams. Which, the, the fucking samurai shit? Yeah, which yeah, okay, yeah, okay, both yeah, rated yeah. as the lowest rated Avatar episode in this in this series so far. And judging from what's coming, what we'll end up holding up is that. Um, because it's interesting because I think some of the things I saw at the very start of this episode, and we're gonna, not going to spend too much time on this because I don't want to turn this into an, another litigation of, of that episode, but seeing kind of Sokka you know, laying out some plans, we see them kind of getting ready. There was just another brief like, God, that's what that ep- the last episode could have been. Like, it could have been each of them preparing for it and not just Aang is stressed out, which, you know, which, which <laughs> was fell so flat. So, you know, I, I, I really did. Um, that right away was just like, uh. With that said, you know, this episode is not Nightmares and Daydreams. It's, you know, that's fine. We're going to put that, you know, so we can put that aside. And, but right off the bat, I think it's really, it's really cool how... We get to see kind of all of them, you know, getting kind of getting into into the zone, and then suddenly this this cloud, you know, this fog formation comes in, and it's like, you know, bam! Look at all these, you know, look at all these people. We have uh, Katara and Sokka's father, and the rest of the Water Tribe. We've got Haru and his father. The Boulder and the Hippo are back, who I'm sure Corey is super happy to see. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The mechanist is back. Like there's just a lot of a lot of that stuff, which is which is really cool, and it does kind of give the scent a little bit of sense to the what happened throughout this show, which is Aang kind of going around meeting people, cha- sort of changing lives on very small scales, but showing how that's important. That Aang, you know, they aren't in this position if they don't go to the Northern M- Air Temple and end up working with the with the mecha- mechanist to um, you know to liberate them. They're not in this position if it's not for Katara saving um, Haru and her father and, and the rest of those Earthbenders from that prison. Like it does show that the the actions that Aang took in the in the past and the, the whole really the whole gang took in the past has a real had a real impact and brought them to this moment, which is which I think is really cool and and kind of makes it feel like a much more sort of holistic thing like i i feel like there's a version of this where there's like just this entirely new cast of kind of forgettable characters and we don't have to care about them but the fact that they gave us sort of familiar faces helped out a lot with it yeah i actually like the point like mark you ever um play mass effect 2 i have not but our other guest has really you never played mass effect 2 no what's wrong with you i never played any mass effect in Mass Effect 2, your ending, your ending success is really based on, you know, all the side quests you do, all the people you meet, all the allies you're making, all that stuff. 
And like the way you mention it, and like the way I remember the episode, it's it's kind of like similar. Everything little thing Aang has done is paying off dividends in this fight, and it's a very nice way. That's why I was saying earlier, it's like a nice way to wrap up everything in this episode, where everything that you've been watching is now helping Team Avatar out as a whole, and it's just very satisfying as a viewer to watch that everything you think is something that you shouldn't care about, you actually should care about. It is true. It really is like all the side story quests and you come together. <laughs> I didn't think about that. It's good. Um, so what, one thing I find very interesting at the beginning, we have this whole public speaking thing, which I actually like. I think that it, it kind of makes sense that you have Sokka kind of really isn't particularly prepared for this kind of thing. He's a good sort of tactician in the in the small sense of, of planning something out, but actually getting up in front of a group is, is a lot more difficult for him. And I think that that is interesting. However, I also find it bizarre that it is um, Sokka and then Hakoda giving this speech, and Aang is completely absent from it whatsoever. And it's very clear that this is a plan to invade the Fire Nation. And then we have that line at the end, which is like, by the end of this, the Avatar will have defeated the Fire Lord. And it feels like those are very dis- completely disjointed things that don't really have much to do with one another. And I think that's bizarre for what the kind of quote-unquote role of the Avatar is within this world. That Aang feels somewhat, not in- inconsequential, because obviously he has, to, he has to take down the Fire Lord, but that Aang has very little to do with the actual invasion and is kind of another sort of a completely separated from that yeah it's like the avatar is supposed to be like the leader of the f- like people or just like a tool just let yeah you just let him let him go he's like the secret agent i don't know i, I don't think he was ever supposed to be a leader per se i think Sokka was always like the the spiritual successor to his own father being like the actual military leader well you know, the Avatar's entire purpose is to be like, you know, bring balance uh, uh, between the nations and more of like a spiritual thing more so than like an actual military thing. Yeah, because he's like the, supposed to be the like the neutral party that keeps everyone in check, right? He's not supposed to be on a side, in theory. Mm, Historically. Yeah. I mean, that's that gets it does get complicated. But I think, I don't know, I think it, it makes sense, but I think it just continues to speak to the larger point about Aang in this in this whole thing that ang is not stepping into a role as an inspirational leader he is you know yes he has a duty he needs to defeat the fire lord and he's going into this with the the you know the plan to do that but it does sort of strike me that there is no like, there isn't anything from Aang here to be like, you know, thank you for, you know, standing with me, the Avatar. And what's sort of the comparison I'll make is that we'll see, and this is, this, you know, skips ahead to part two, but in part two, at the end, Aang gives the thank you for doing this, thank you for your sacrifice, I will not let you down, I will obviously be, I will be back. And I think it's sort of, speaks very clearly to Aang, sort of A, from a priority standpoint, but B, kind of what pushes him into action, where in a moment of 
it's time to everyone sort of here for a reason. It's time to kind of hype people up and get people ready to go. Aang is somewhat absent, but eventually when Aang is kind of forced into that, um, like forced into it because, you know, the, the troops are essentially all going to be carted off to prison, that becomes like suddenly he's in, he's becomes into that role. And obviously he's going to move more and more towards that as we, he goes into life. And we, you know, we see it a little bit with other avatars, not that we saw Roku like leading a force, but he's still kind of much more like clearly trying to be a vocal one. He's standing up to, to, to Sozin in, in those moments. We clearly see it with Korra where she is definitely the sort of leader you know de facto in a lot of a lot of the things that she's trying to do and you know even if it's working against some of you know some of her advisors or some of some of her elders and you know i said i think you just what or neither the pr team that's true um but i think that that it just it speaks to sort of that in this moment it's it's Sokka who's supposed to be up there and when Sokka fails it's Sokka's father, who's up there, clearly a military, a military man, and in Sokka's case, sort of an expiring military man. That this is a military operation, and Aang is kind of a little bit on the sidelines for it. So, what do you guys think of Appa in armor? It's the most badass thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Where do you get the armor from? We, we don't know, but Sokka <laughs> did mention it back during the runaway that he was thinking about making uh, armor for Appa. So my guess, really is sent subs, plans guess. To, my guess is he plans, sent plans to the mechanist and he brought it. Okay, that makes sense. It looks absolutely amazing. Like, doesn't he look like, man, more flying bison should have that. Like, it's insane how well, good it looks. It does sort of, I think, raise an interesting question of, like, Flying bison were tamed by airbenders who are inherently not confrontational <laughs> and pacifists. Right. So it does sort of think, it, you know, if they wanted to, they would be able to just, you know, just conquer all the other nations. Yeah, if they, you mean if they armored up their flying bisons and they were warlike? Yeah. In theory, there should be no historical armor for flying bison. Yeah. They're never war beasts. And armor, armor in the Avatar universe goes a long way. Armor can defend against rock. It can defend against obviously water. It can defend against fire. I like, like armor, you say, like in the Avatar universe, as though like you know, armor in the real world not a big deal. No, I I, I agree with you, but like more thinking about what more modern warfare is like, armor doesn't really have a place. But uh, if they were shooting guns, for example, like maybe what. Like, not guns as we know them today, but wouldn't swords would be the only like comparison. Yeah, I, I guess, but you know. But how do they make tanks in this universe? Is there metal work? Is that actually a thing? Yeah, well, we know that there's metal. Guess because they make swords too, so they can make. Yeah, I mean, tank. there's there's been metalworking for a long time. Um, I mean, I guess we can kind of. I guess that'll let us kind of transition quickly into some of the technology stuff. There's a few things I want to talk about before uh, before this stuff, but there's a lot of really interesting technologies in this, and I've always taken it to. We see tanks, specifically the the actual like the Fire Nation tanks, kind of exclusively as a Fire Nation thing. 
which I think I've always sort of attributed to that there's got to be some kind of fire bending going on. Um, there's one shot of just like a guy inside and a hole opens up and he fire bends out. It like nothing else besides just like you know like an armored vehicle. That's all yeah. it is. However, we know that there are steamships in this universe or at this point in time. So we okay. know that a steam engine exists. So it's not at that crazy to like it, we we know that that like there is steam power. So to kind of push that forward into a kind of self-propelling tank isn't like that far fetched. That's true. Then <laughs> the the earthbending tanks have like they're just running like Flintstone style. <laughs> Yeah, but I, my my guess is that those are more are actually Earth, and there is bending going on. Yeah, they're like sliding the ground underneath or something. I don't. Yeah, yeah and moving them. But it, it just looks funny with that one shot. They're just like stunning it out. Mm-hmm. Um, we do get that one really great shot of Ang shaving shaving his head, and then um, Zuko, you know, taking off the taking off his his top bun and kind of kind of revealing him back into the kind of the Zuko, the two sides of Zuko, the, you know, the, the prince and then the one we know. And it is another, you know, moment of like how important hair is within this, within this universe. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm really happy that we got, we got the stuff that we did in Korra that kind of explained the significance of the shaved heads for the airbenders and why it's like, why it's so important. And, like clearly, this was something that that kind of wore on Ang having hair for you know several you know several weeks, if not months, and for him to be able to kind of remove that and and kind of re embrace the fact that he is an Airbender um, is really important. And then on the Zuko side, we we you know understanding the significance of the top bun for the Fire Nation um, elites and how you know with. You know, it's clear that Zuko is more comfortable without that thing on, which is just another, you know, a nice little bit of connection between the two of them and how them using hair to kind of show off what their what their true identity, what what the, how they truly feel inside. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's like he's not hiding and shit anymore. It's like he's, he's out there. So, so how cool are the the great gates of Azulon? Oh, oh my God! Wait, the which are the, are the gates? The thing that come up? Uh, yeah, from the, the, water? the, the okay, big fire net. That's what I was just saying. Like this entire episode, the technology visual, like the world forget it, forget it. But yeah, that and just forget about the the bending, the way they they, they use bending to interact with everything, like. The show is just as much like technologically brilliant as it is just like using like the simple elements to like create warfare. It's such a unique war. You never see like war fought like this in such like a fantasy way like this. It's so yeah, I, feel like, I feel like this is probably a fun a fun episode to write because <laughs> they were like, all right, so how would these guys fight? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, on top of that, I always love when geography becomes a really important part of a world. And I really love these gates because it's clear that this only makes sense within a crescent-shaped island that has, like, a very small natural choke that you could put up some kind of a, like, this kind of defensive structure. 
Like, clearly this is not something you could do in most parts of the Earth Kingdom. Maybe there's a few bays you could defend like this. But, like, knowing what the Fire Nation is and how, okay, one way we, our capital could be exposed is through a sea-based invasion. How do we defend against that? We have this natural kind of natural barrier and we're using that. And I always... I always love it when that like that type of geography kind of plays into how decisions are being made. What's also interesting is there's no such thing as anti air because they're not going to fight us. The airbenders aren't fighting, so they didn't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, there's no air warfare. Yeah, at least not yet. Um, were there planes in Korra? There were, right? What? Were there planes in Korra? I don't yes, remember now. There were planes in Korra. Um, all right, so I'm going to I'm going to give Corey a, a moment cuz usually this is the thing he likes to talk about. I want you to I want you to talk about Iro and uh and how he's going to kill some uh kill some people. I love I absolutely forgot how much I love the scene him telling the uh the prison guard that's nice to him like, "Yeah, you might want to go." You know? Like like one of those like, "Yeah, don't show up to school tomorrow" type deals, but like like he's just so the way he like handled it and like the way he did it like like in real life if Iroh someone like Iroh's stature was in prison you can imagine there would be like nice people to him still not just everyone would like hate him so just seeing him do that and like knowing what's coming it's it's I I, it just reaffirms Iroh's my favorite character it's not even a question yeah I, I think it one it shows off that like what you just said with the fact that Iroh is going to have some supporters and be someone who we've known to be so nice and kind is clearly going to be able to bond with certain, you know, with people, even, even some prison guards. And on top of that, I love the way his kind of tone shifts from, you know, thank you for this, you know, small gesture, you know, and then are you sure you're feeling that way? And then he kind of has that, that sudden like stern look of, you know, when he when he says that, like, it'd be better if you are not here. And it's like, oh, okay, that's that's something we haven't seen in a while, Iroh. And, like, it just gives you a great moment of, yeah, Iroh's, Iroh's about to do something. Yeah. I mean, you, you it's just such good foreshadowing for what's to come. Mm-hmm. I went before this, did he, like, show up how much of a badass he is? Um... <laughs> Not that, not a couple. But like, of like strength wise, like he's um stronger than all of you guys. Like I could bust out of here with my pinky type deal. Yeah, it was a couple episodes ago. It was the, the the crazy training montage. Yeah, yeah, but like before, like before the, before like all of when he was in prison, did he ever show off his like true strength? Like he, really, probably during Siege of the North Part Two when he like took out all the Firebenders after the moon, the Ocean Spirit was. Oh yeah, 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 after yeah, yeah, the yeah. Moon Spirit was killed. Chains off. All right, so we do have to have one. Uh, we do have to. Mo- I do have to mention this. Um, we do get Ang Katara's first kiss. That ironic how where they it was placed, you know. <laughs> yes, it's it's interesting and kind of again for an episode that Ang does not actually do anything. This is kind of the most significant part of the episode for Ang. And it, it's just, it, it makes me more annoyed that they gave it away last episode. You know, yeah, that, like, was, that was really dumb. But again, we're not we're we're done. We're not litigating that again. But it does. It affects the it scene. It does. 
in Nightmares and Daydreams, there is a Aang is hal- like so tired he's hallucinating and he hallucinates kissing Katara, uh, and then it's like, oh no, that didn't actually happen. That was in Aang's head, and it's really upsetting. but but Mark, uh, we have to discuss it. It's like the elephant in the room because it, I I believe it affects the scene negatively. All right, I'm gonna I'm let saying- you. I'm gonna let you have the floor and explain that. That's fine. it's let's, it's let's, basi- we'll basically it. they. If you're teasing all of part three and some of part two, um, and obviously in part one you know Anya had a crush since episode one on Katara, so this is like something like, not me, but the fans want, and like, it's just something that you've been anticipating, and then you show the visual and a fake out one episode before you actually commit to it, I think it diminishes what you see. <sighs> I'll be honest. I I tried to block out nightmares and daydreams as much as possible while watching this. So I, I and it, it would be easier to do if it was the beginning of the season or yeah. uh, or they faked it out a lot earlier. But it just happened. Yeah, that is a that is a reasonable point. And I yes, I think that kiss in nightmares and daydreams is is really bad. It's really like annoying on behalf of the creators, and it speaks to many of the larger problems we we talked about last week I'm trying to decide if I actually think it affects this moment because functionally that's entirely a non-diegetic argument because the kiss didn't actually happen it was inside Aang's head and I don't think that you would argue that Aang having that vision is impacting your feelings here this is exclusively a question the of... Visual, the visual. The visual. So it's, it's entirely a, did they spoil the moment by doing that? That's, that's essentially the argument you're making. Yes. Yeah. It's probably... It probably wasn't... It definitely maybe... Yeah, it's like 10% worse. I think it's much more yeah. than that, but there's, there's a point. You're right. I'm going to give it to you. I agree. For the record, someone coming back into this and watching this episode in isolation was fine. <laughs> I, I agree. And I essentially did that even though I watched Nightmares and Daydreams last week and spent like an hour yelling about like, it. Like I, I just watched it an hour ago. That's why. Yeah. So I'm not I, I'm not going to go like it ruined it, but I, I will agree that, that putting those two things back to back was a was a mistake. But everything about Nightmares and Daydreams was a mistake. So, yeah. With all of that said, I do like I, mean, I do like this moment. Obviously, I shit bang a guitar, so obviously I like this moment. But I think this this in and of itself was well done. It feels like it feels like a good culmination of this moment. It, there does seem it does make sense that you know there is some belief here that they wouldn't be to get you know that they might not both survive. Um, they are going off into a war. Aang is going to face the Fire Lord. And, you know, obviously we know that this is going to end up being a pretty inconsequential moment and, and really is going to have almost no impact on on all of this. The, the impact of the Eclipse is really just Zuko. But they don't know that going in, and I think it does make sense that this if this was going to happen, this is a moment that it would I actually, you know, it's interesting having this line here where they say everything is going to be different after today. Um, you know, occasionally we do do the comparisons to something like Harry Potter, which is, that's a line that is 
at the end of a Harry Potter movie and it makes no sense when Hermione says it and I like <laughs> was so confused by it in the moment. Like I the actually end of dislike... all Harry Potter? Like the entire series? Or No, it's the what end of Order of the Phoenix. Um, I, I'm not going to lie, the last like three movies just kind of moved together, blended together. That was, you probably should allow that to happen and just pretend they never happened. I don't remember what happened in the last like two books. <laughs> well, that's a different story. The books you should remember. Right. Um, books and whatever. But it's a really, it's a really dumb, it's a really dumb Hermione line and I don't like it, but I actually think this is a moment where it does make sense. This is a momentous kind of moment where yes, it, you know, things are going to be different and you know, their relationship is probably going to be different. Turns out that this day was going to be very inconsequential and actually their relationship isn't going to really change all that much on this moment, which kind of, there's a, you know, there is sort of an irony to this where, you know, you can feel a version where Aang does defeat the Fire Lord and this is, this is their moment of, of them kind of being together, but because it's not, it ends up being kind of really more of a, of a footnote. With that being said, don't don't kiss her and then just fly away. Bad move, Ang. <laughs> you gotta. You need to say goodbye there. But I, I think it was also a matter of like him, like a man up moment for him too. Like more so than him shaving his head. It's also a matter of like I I just gotta do what I gotta do. I don't disagree. You know I mean? I'm just saying that's not a good way to treat to treat people. Why? Look how it ends up turning out. I don't know. If Aang maybe had said something, maybe they wouldn't have spent another, you know, couple of weeks pretending like it never happened slash arguing about it. Open communication. So so here's another kind of sort of Aang weird part of this episode. Did you find it bizarre that Aang leaves Appa behind and goes in on his own. No, I think I know they needed Appa to do things. <laughs> like it was part of the plan, right? Mm-hmm. I can see like a, a a scene before this probably be like, no, no, I need Appa, and then they're like, no, we need Appa. Well, it's, I'm just saying it's it's you it's, can fly by yourself. It's interesting that throughout this episode, I I really do get the sense that Ang is really not part of the invasion. That Aang defeating the Fire Lord is kind of the... The Fire Lord has done bad things, and, and therefore the Avatar needs to take him out. The invasion is the other nations mounting the invasion of the Fire Nation. And I feel... I assume, I assume that the, the invasion was the distraction and while well, he slips in behind him. That, was that not the plan? I thought that was the plan. I think it's more that they know that they need to take the Fire Nation capital to win the war. But if you just take out the fire lord, doesn't it just win the war? Not necessarily. I mean, you. I, don't know. I, think, I think that's what. Because like, I think the idea being that Aang. if you were to just take out the fire lord, then Zuko becomes fire lord and is just still just fire. You know, like they're not anything different. Yeah, I guess so. Like I, I think that like it's it is important that they actually have control of the capital but and the reason i say this though is that it's interesting that in that dichotomy for me 
Appa is squarely on the invasion side and not with Aang, and Aang is by himself. And this is going to happen again in the finale, where Katara and, um, you know, where Appa, you know, once again, Aang is off on his own. Appa is not with him. I think that's just, it's just interesting, especially with the fact well, that... The finale, it was, like, on purpose. He just kind of... No, it, yeah, it, it is not. It is not on purpose, but it's just another. It just two, tying these two things together. Um, I don't know. I I'm not really sure what I, if I'm drawing anything from this. I don't really have a like an actual like point you, here. Are, are just, you are you arguing? I guess not arguing, but are you saying that like in your head that they're two? I, I don't. Know, I don't want to say destinies, but like Appa and Aang's destiny should be inter. Right now. Well, they are. Like their story should be together the entire well, we, time. We, they are, and the the idea of they the av- the avatar and his animal guide or their animal guide being really important is a thing. I'm just again, I don't really have an argument here. I'm kind of just making an observation that it that it it did make me think for a second about oh yeah, wow, Aang is not with Appa. Appa is with Katara and Sokka here, and I just I think it's interest. It's just interesting that that's the case. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I don't know what to take more, but yeah, it's interesting. I I always viewed it as a way that he was trying to protect them. So you're gonna put him in the front lines of a battle? Like that's. Well, he's wearing armor. Yeah, but he could he could put that armor on and fly with Aang. Yeah, but like, what's Alpha gonna do in his fight against the fire? Also, is it is it like Sky Bison like? skin pretty tough anyway because i didn't he get shot by like flack or something at one point he, yeah he <laughs> may like, shoot some stuff at him and he does have um he he's flies growls and keeps going he flies through a um like essentially the cloud of a bomb or of a like a yeah, it's a tank so yeah actually a tank he definitely can take you know he can definitely take a bit of a beating so First question I have about the actual fighting, you know, the invasion itself. Do you guys think that it was tr- they were trying to show that the Fire Nation was prepared for this or underprepared for this? I think they were prepared for a traditional invasion. Not the super secret underwater, oops, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I oh, need do they have any... Were there any moments where waterbenders and earthbenders attacked again? Um, in the history like, of the world? No, no, in this fight. Because maybe they were prepared for one nation attacking, not both nations attacking at the same time. Hmm. But I don't know if they're actually watering, like together. Because in, in theory, they do know that this is coming, at least on the earthbending side. And are obviously fully prepared for it. What I'm... What I'm one, what I was sort of wondering, sort of as the the invasion started, was, do you think that they were sort of f- actually fully prepared and kind of just letting this happen so that they could get you know draw them in so the you know the airships can now eventually come in in part two, or if there was some taking them by surprise with you know Sokka's inventions and the submarines and all of that. And that they were sort of a little bit unprepared, but eventually were able to sort of 
you know, ha- hold some, you know, uh, hold the airships back for for the right moment. I don't know. I mean, if they thought they were going to repel it off really easily, what's the point of hiding in the tunnels, right? Yeah. But I, I think it was a, a, a smaller garrison, if that makes sense. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. We also don't necessarily... I mean, in theory, that the, the threat, their threat of invasion was pretty low for a long time, so it's probably... They're probably not at... Don't have as many troops, yeah. like, in the capital for this, since it's, they but, uh, had... Uh, Defcon 1 or whatever. Is one more? Yeah. Defcon 1 is the highest alert, right? Yeah, hey, I think it goes down. I like the yeah, little touch of uh, top yes. getting sick in the submarine. Oh, you're getting sick. Oh, yeah. Puking in the helmet. Because, of course, why, why wouldn't she? So, one, I, I, I definitely, and I think, uh, Chris, you brought this up earlier. Um, it does seem like air power is just so much more powerful than anything that they have. The moments when Appa it does kind of get into the battlefield, it seems just like yeah, the fire engine really does not have much of a defense for that. Yeah, they're like shooting up crazy. Yeah, we never we, we never had to do that before. Which is interesting considering that they have war balloons now and have kind of developed. <laughs> they have developed air, but they kind of they don't have any reason to think that they would need to do it again. You know, have any reason? Nobody to do it else has them. air. It's fine. Yeah. Um, so I also, I really like how we, we get a moment for getting to see Hakoda, you know, fighting and, and, and he definitely has, you know, he get, both gets his moment while also kind of maybe bites off a little more than he can chew being a total non-bender and kind of going in by himself and, you know, doesn't end up, ends up not going so well for him. He goes in on his own and... Like it was like a grenade goes off or something. Yeah, and I also I like how what it shows that you know Katara and Sokka are probably better fighters than Hakoda is. Like Katara is a master waterbender at this point. Sokka is really really good with a sword and and really does know what he's doing. And I think it's there's a nice sort of interplay there where Hakoda is still. I'm the father. I'm the adult. I, you know, I'm, I'm clearly yeah, the. Go together. I'll, I got it. I got yeah. this. Up. And it's you know he's the one who tells them like watch each other's backs. You know, be careful. I, you know, I have don't have anything to worry about. But he's the one who gets sort of gets taken down. Um, I think is 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 important. Um, on top of that, I think it. I think at least it did do a really good job of being able to match the major stakes for the world that are going on that this is an invasion of the fire nation in theory this is a you know a plan to end 100 year, 100 years of war while also having like very much smaller and simpler personal stakes where the focus is on Sokka and Katara and their father and then eventually Sokka leading the charge kind of coming into his own as as a leader and it's you know they don't spend as much time focused on the fact that this is actually an invasion to, you know, of the world, you know, with world ending implications. And I think that's really like, I always think that's better. I always think if you can have the smaller sort of personal oh, yeah. stories. Like, that if you look at all the best, like battle scenes, that's always how it happens. 
it's always a grand like like big picture thing and then you go into like the smaller like individual personalized actions in the right yeah. like the the individual soldier you know having his moment you know yeah so all the best values are always like that the question i do sort of want to ask here and you know we've been doing this a, a fair amount over the last couple of weeks do you think that this battle being sort of the you know the, the second but really the first sort of full-on two army like things hitting each other is harmed by the la- the fact that they cannot be particularly brutal and that it's it is this is a you know kids cartoon we're not going to see anyone dying the, the the worst we get is you know hakoda holding his side um do you think that that negatively impacts this or is 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 nothing does not because it is made up for with how stunning and clever the visuals yeah i don't think it needs to be overly like going over the top and like r-rated as long as like the action's good Mm mm-hmm but it does make me want to see it in you know, like a fucking full-on Michael Bay version because that would just be cool to see. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, I I thought it was was completely fine and, and certainly not something that you know would have would have ever happened. Um, but it, you know, I, I just thought it was interesting to ask the question. So Corey, you've you've kind of been been harping on this a lot. So I want to give you the floor to kind of talk about the visuals and all the stuff that they end up doing with the different fighting styles and and technology and the like. I just feel like everything comes into its own where every everything like that you see on screen is crammed with something unique and like I had to there were actually times in the episode where like I was watching the episode but I was like you know my eyes were shifting between screens and I would catch something and I would have to reverse it just to catch all like the eye candy the designs of the tanks the designs of the armor what the uh, everyone was wearing. Everyone, all these armies that have been gathered and characters we met throughout the show have such clashing styles and looks. And watching them all fight side by side just looks amazing. And, like, they are able to do so many unique and clever things. So, overall, I think everything comes together in such a phenomenal way. Yeah. I mean, I, we, I mentioned this before, but I think this is the best episode for technology within the avatar world merging with bending in really interesting ways um you know getting to see those earth tanks and you know how yeah this is a kind of thing that makes sense that would exist within the avatars universe you have earth benders they can move things all right well they'll move a defensive structure that allows them to hold you know rocks for sort of as ammunition um, you saw, you know, we met this mechanist back in, in book one who was inventing stuff and, and doing things and was inventing weapons for the Fire Nation. And we kind of get to see some of, you know, some of his um, ideas and the fact that he was sort of prone to blowing things up, which, you know, ends up working out really well when he can you know, roll that, uh, that, that card of blasting jelly into, into a wall. Um, it felt very in-universe in and I think that can be kind of hard to do. Sometimes when you add this kind of technology to a world, and you know, we'll talk about this quite a bit when we get to book one of Korra, it can kind of feel a little weird. It can kind of feel like, wait, is this technology? What is this? But 
in this episode, I think they do a really great job of kind of balancing it and bringing it together where bending influenced and made the technology cooler and the technology in turn influenced and made the bending really cool. Um, well, the thing is, the, te- the technology is built around bending, and if bending didn't exist, not, it, it wouldn't be made. There's useless technology, which is what I appreciate, and I think, ironically enough, like, the inclusion of electricity in Korra and, like, planes that can fly on their own, not because, you know, airbenders are bending at the fly, hurts the show, in a way. Well, because, like... Keep in mind that the electricity in Korra is generated from l- lightning bending. Sure, which is fair. Yeah, it was. Mako gets but, a job at a lightning-bending plant. But the technology only exists in this show because bending is able to make it work, and I think very unique and cool. Yeah, and, and yeah, we'll 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 talk about the the core stuff as when we get there. But yeah, that for sure is is that's the kind of stuff I really love when you can have a world. It makes the world feel completely real and 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 unique when the technology is built off of the world itself that it exists in so a really small moment that i that i really liked um in kind of breaking up this episode and also giving us kind of another insight into how like the fire nation is prepared for this and and that this is a problem when we see Zuko, kind of his his last moment, leaving the the note for May and and all that, where there's just a calmness to what's going, you know, to to the way Zuko is carrying himself, the way you know, the way that he's moving, that feels really like important here because again, like we know that this is not actually that big a deal for the Fire Nation that they are prepared for this. They have evacuated their you know, the castle and, and and the capital city and are in this bunker underground. So to kind of see Zuko moving, it's not like everyone's running around preparing for an invasion and Zuko is kind of, you know, just sitting there. Like there's just this, this calmness to it that feels really out of place with what's going on outside. But of course, that makes sense because they're real, the stuff that's going outside actually ends up being kind of meaningless and the Fire Nation doesn't really care all that much about it. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Did um, were, were were you happy when when Zuko uh, left left May? Are you uh, as as I know you hate them, Corey? Yes, <laughs> I mean, but I but they like it's again, it's shallowed out by the fact that they like break up and get back together all the time. You know, they're who, always, who, they're always who, fighting. So who is who is worse in this episode? Aang for uh, kissing Katara and just leaving, or Zuko for no, only I, leaving? See, I never, I never agreed with you that Aang was in the wrong by doing that. That's all right. So it's an alpha it's move. Move. <laughs> a, Yeah, A, it's an alpha move, and B, Katara, like it was the best reaction Katara could have had. She was flabbergasted and like, oh my god, and it worked out. I'm not sure that flabbergasted is the reaction you particularly want when you kiss someone for the first time. Well, I mean that in the most positive way I could mean. Okay, that's fair. I'm just, uh, just, just saying. Um, and then you know, Ang enters the capital city, and there's nothing. 
and he screams, where are you? Um, so kind of a question, kind of the, the sort of first time you, you watch this. Um, one, the first time you guys saw this episode, did you think that they would be successful in this invasion? No, well, what do you mean? By, do you mean successful in like? That's a hard question. <laughs> did you th- the f- obviously benefit of hindsight, and obviously we knew that there were a bunch more episodes after this. But did you think that this would be something where they would in fact succeed and kind of take the capital and? That would be not I mean not not that that would be that, but that the rest of the show would kind of be kind of turned to a different thing, like maybe going after Ozai or or Azula or something like that. Or did you think that this was kind of a a bit of a red herring from the beginning? When I first watched it as a kid, I thought they would succeed, but that's my little kid brain, so it's hard for me to like justify it in a way where it's like anything like. I, I, I thought they were going to see because they were the good guys and they put this whole plan together and I that's why I thought that. I think I think my problem was that I watched this series so sporadically before watching it all the way through that I think I've probably watched most more episodes after this before I watched this episode. So <laughs> my opinion that's, might not be. That's that's a that's a, that is a way to the way to put it. Um because I'll be honest, I I thought that they would that this would succeed. I honestly thought that this was going to be the de- defeating of the Fire Lord, and that the rest of the show was going to be about Zuko and Azula. And Zuko, Zuko and Azula, really? That it was going to be some kind of a Zuko redemption thing. Like I knew that that was probably going to happen, but that. I kind of thought, you know, Jose's not that important of a villain. No one really cares about him. Yeah, they'll maybe they'll defeat him here, and then the rest of the show will be kind of about the more interesting villains, Zuko and Azula, with eventually Zuko being redeemed. So, so what you're telling me is the last three episodes of Game of Thrones. A little bit. <laughs> Except I, I, I'll do another that the one difference being that Ozai was not built up from the beginning, he was literally didn't have a face until this book, and was he not built up the beginning? I thought he was built up from the beginning. I mean, a, the idea of the Fire Nation was, but Ozai himself, not as much. Okay, I don't remember. I thought I thought it was always like I need to defeat the Fire Lord, like from from the beginning of it all. I or think was it was the, more I need to defeat the Fire Nation as a whole, and I think that we the. the the big difference, though, be of Game of Thrones being that Azula and Zuko were part of the Fire Nation, not, like, completely separated. My point being that I thought that the final defeating of the Fire Nation was going to come down to Azula and Zuko, and maybe not have anything to do with Ozai. And it turned out that no, Ozai just was, was that from the beginning. So what you're saying is the way Star Wars is right now with Snoke as the red hair and Kylo Ren. Um, sure. I have no idea where Star Wars is going. I'm not, I'm not someone who has a no problem with, with Snoke. I think it's fine. 
I have a problem with no, but I, everything. No, that's what I'm. That's what I'm asking you. Is, is yes, that what look, you something like that. Just a little bit. I think that the difference being that because Ozai was so nondescript and didn't do anything and never even like, you know, literally didn't have lines until you know uh, book two. It was going to be a situation like. It felt more like that would have made sense in that. Well, moment. you you didn't you didn't watch anime. I mean, outside of you know, like like that's a big anime trope. I wouldn't be surprised either. I mean, the animes I've watched that I had watched before this didn't really do that because the ones I did did. So I, I no, always thought that it was... there is no big bad. I shouldn't really say this, but there is no big bad in Yu Hakusho. Um, like. Dragon Ball Z, not really. I mean, I guess technically it, there is one in Yu-Gi-Oh, but, like, I don't care. Well, yeah. I, I I always suspected he'd be the last boss in a way. I always thought, the way I originally thought it would be, would be, you know, Zuko and Azula, um, Aang and the Fire Lord. Like, everyone would have, like, thing they have to overcome. I I agree with that, but I honestly thought that there was a chance that the Fire Lord wouldn't end up being. I don't know. Actually, I, maybe I'm not. Maybe I, maybe that's not true. Maybe because I think the fi- I actually also thought the Fire Lord and Uko would confront each other too. Well, they will just you know in part two. Right. Um. All right. So that's that's more or less what I got. You guys got anything else? No. I mean, uh, a lot of the meat and potatoes part, too. Yeah. So, I think we'll we'll hold off giving giving a rating for this because this 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 as this as a two-parter is very much what, you know, one episode that happens to be 44, you know, whatever 44 minutes long or 48 minutes long as opposed to um 24. So, I think we'll we'll hold off and give our our final thoughts and our ratings, but I think it was nice to be able to kind of dive into this part of this of this book or this part of this episode on its own. We'll talk about um part 2 next week, and then I think we'll do kind of a wrap up of this of this sort of little mini uh kind of movie in the middle of the book, which interesting that they kind of did this both in book 2 and book 3. Um and even in, I guess in theory in book 1 with um Roku and Spirit World. So is this like a like a mid season finale? I don't I don't know what the original airing was. Um I think technically yes. But that's that was long enough ago that I'm not really Yeah, I have no idea. I don't, I don't know when the season I, I mean I guess I could look up when these when these episodes premiered, but yeah. It probably was a mid season because it is episodes ten and eleven, so it would make sense yeah. that this is the this was the mid season finale. All right, so with that, thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you to Corey and Chris for being here. We'll be back next week with part two, and hopefully we will then move on to the kind of the home stretch into the end of Avatar The Last Airbender. So that's really exciting. Once again, thank you guys very much, and we'll see you next week.